0: Awesome to welcome Kent State Head Coach Rob Senderhoff to the basketball podcast. Rob Sanderoff ranks all-time winningest coach in program history with 219 wins. Senderhoff is an elite company that includes Tom Izzo and Mark Few as head coaches who have not had a losing season during their head coaching career with a minimum of 10 seasons coached. In 2022 23 season, Senderhoff led Kent State to 28-7, and 15-3 conference play record. It is the best record of Centerhoff's career and the best record by Kent State since 2007, 2008, when they also went 28 and 7 overall. Kent State would defeat Toledo to win the MAC tournament. It was the second time in Centerhoff's career his Flashes won the tournament and their second appearance in the NCAA tournament during his tenure. The 2022 MAC Coach of the Year and 26 year coaching veteran has continued the success of a storied program that he helped build by leading the Golden Flashes to seven 20 win campaigns most by any coach in Kent State history Rob welcome to the podcast great to be here thanks for having me well great to to, talk to you and um, tremendous success in your time at Kent State and uh you know we've all been there as a coach uh 2022-23 season uh obviously ended in the NCAA tournament but the year before the disappointment of losing in the Mac final talk to us a little bit about how to rally a team after the expectations fell a little short but now, obviously, into the next season. Yeah, we, we had a, a great end to, to the
1: 21-22 year where we had won 14 uh, straight games heading into the conference championship game um, against Akron. Uh, that night, you know, we, we, we played really poorly that evening, um, and Akron had a lot to do with why we played poorly uh we also had an off the court incident the night before which really sort of messed up the the momentum of of how our team was was going at that time so uh it was a really disappointing end to the year um and and tough not not easy to to handle so um i joked around afterwards that you know they said how how were you able to sleep after that and i said well i slept like a baby Uh, i woke up every three hours and started to cry so um you know it was there too yeah we've all been there so it was tough um i think the the biggest key to to the success that we were able to have this year it, it did start from that disappointment um you know the the core group of players all chose to come back which again, in, in this era, is, is, you know, not common. Uh, at least it doesn't appear to be common. Uh, I had the returning player of the year come back, his name's Sincere Carey, uh, and an all-defensive team player. Uh, Malik Jacobs, who, you know, went on this year to be the defensive player of the year in the league. So both of those guys coming back and and the group around them all choosing to be here I think that's really where it started. Um, you know, we used, we have a code in our locker room, and the code that we had was the score of the game last year. That was the code. So every day that they walked into the locker room, they were reminded of that score. That's right. Uh, which, you know, <laughs> quite honestly, I had forgotten a little bit about until after we beat Akron in in the semifinals. Uh, You know, they were all talking about, hey, we're changing that code uh, after we after we won. So it obviously had a lot of meaning to the guys on the team that they had to look at that every day uh, when they came in the office. I mean, in the uh, in the locker room. Um, But generally speaking, it's not as if we discussed it all that often. Um, You know, I I just think as as a player and as a coach, it, it does motivate you when you have some disappointment to try to to try to come back even better. So, you know, our kids deserve all the credit to that because in this league in particular, there's a lot of pressure when you play in the conference tournament because it is a one-bit league. So uh, not everybody's built for that, you know, as a, as a player. Not everybody's built for that as a program. Um, and, and our kids, I think, really had a great focus. They didn't play tight which I give them, again, a ton of credit for um, because I, I can see how you can be tight uh, given that circumstance. But uh, we just played, and and, and our, our motto for the year, and it developed over time, was just do what we do. Um, and that was sort of our mantra when we went up to Cleveland, was that if we do what we do to the best of our ability, it was going to be good enough. Um, the season didn't start with that as our mantra if that makes sense like it was after a couple disappointments during the year whether it was you know a tough loss uh or whatever when we're watching film and just saying hey what we do is good enough we had one of our starters broke it, broke his hand uh you know early in league play you know and we had to change a little bit how we played but it was just stay focused on what we, are, we need to do to be successful. If we do that, it's good enough. Uh, and, and it turned out to be good enough.
0: Definitely did. And uh, you guys are a great watch. This is a really unique, cool stat is that, yeah, obviously you've had just great success in games decided by five or fewer, fewer points. And uh, I think the record overall is 75 and 46 for 620 winning percentage in such games, including 14 and 8, 636 record in overtime games. Man, that's that's a pretty cool stat to have as a coach. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that have led to that success beyond just the players? Yeah, I
1: I'd like to tell you that I should take some credit <laughs> for that one, but it's funny cuz when you bring that up immediately what comes to my mind is that we've had really good guards and um when you have some good guards and it to my to to what I would say is I don't try to overcoach them all that much. Um we do a lot of coaching in practice. we do we're We're not you know rolling the balls out and just playing. We're doing a lot of coaching in practice. But when you've done a lot of coaching and practice and then you have good players and you let them feel like they have confidence to make plays, um, confidence to make plays, I think that's why the results are what they are. And you know over the the last two years, we've had you know the best point guard in our league you know, back-to-back years. Um, And prior to that, you know, we've had, we play with multiple point guards on the floor. So I think our decision-making, generally speaking, right? (laughs) Generally speaking, our decision-making with the basketball has been pretty good. Uh, Your point guards, again, generally speaking, are good free-throw shooters. Um, So you have good decision-makers, good free-throw shooters on the floor. You try to keep it simple uh, and stay with a mindset of, of being a defensive-oriented mindset. And then those close games, you're able to win a lot of those, I think, because of that. I'm
0: curious, is there anything specific you're doing within practice in terms of creating special situations to get used to it? And then I guess the second part is, are your players aware of that stat? Because I think that would feed belief, right? Which would be a yeah. big part of it as
1: well. Yeah, and that's a great point. I think they're very well aware of that that we've done well in close games. I think they're very well aware of that um, we do finish almost every practice. Certainly, you know, you get thirty practices leading up to your first game. You know, then in the months months of November and December, before you're on a regular schedule like a league schedule, playing every you know Tuesday, Saturday, or or Tuesday, Friday in league. Certainly, up to that point, we we end almost every practice with a four-minute game or a 60-60 game so a four-minute game is it's four minutes uh both teams have one foul to give and we play a four-minute game coach is coach after that second foul you're in the single bonus or the double bonus um and we either do that or a game where the score is 60-60 And we designate a score where, okay, now whenever the first team reaches 65 or the first team reaches 66, we put two minutes on the clock. Everything is, everything in that two minute segment is in the bonus. Prior to that two minute segment, everything's on the floor unless it's in the act of shooting. So we have practice end in games, in close game situations. Of of the thirty practices, that would be one of those two scenarios. Is every is every practice in the months of November and December? You know, I wouldn't say every practice. Maybe it's every other practice once we start games, and then it's less likely that we do that. You know, in in conference season, because at that point we're we're trying not to go as long, but. If there's a break or if we feel like we need a 60-60 game because of a situation that we didn't handle well or we're trying to get in some reminders of some late game stuff, we may do a 60-60 game. Clock starts at 62. So then it's the first basket. Now we're starting the two minutes. So we'll adjust that. But that is a core of what we do. I, You know, sometimes I, I, I don't, I don't know that all of these things correlate, right? Like, is that the reason why we have confidence in close games, or is the reason we have confidence in close games because we've had really good point guard play and good guard play? I'm sure there's some balance of both, right? Like, you 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 do what you do to try to be good at what you what you're good at, Um, but some of it certainly has to do with with you know having excellent players that are able to. To to
0: make these plays late in late in games, absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's really hard in coaching sometimes to determine cause and effect with a definitive mindset saying that that is actually it. Right. So I totally get it, and uh, it's beautiful, great insights there. And uh, you know, defensively, I mean, a lot of things stand out. Um, just for co- coaches listening, last year yeah. held opponents to forty point three percent shooting, nineteenth in the country, including 33 percent on three point shoot on uh, three point shooting, with thirty eighth in the country. I want to go to some of those things, but I think first I want to start within the last two of the three years that you've led your league in defensive scoring, yep. and that seems to be a big emphasis, and it doesn't always go hand-in-hand hand with a great half-court defense is the ability to force turnovers, and you seem to be doing both. Yeah, I think, okay, so that's one thing. I, I
1: use this as an example because this past year, uh, Jim Christian who has been a head coach for 20 years who was really sort of the godfather of the program here at Kent. And he left Kent and went to TCU and Ohio and Boston College. And now he's back somewhat in an advisory role. So as he watched us practice this year, you know, the things that stood out to him, which again, when you're doing it every day, you just sort of, this is what we do. So it's, it's what we do, but the things that that stood out to him as being really interesting is one our, our practices are incredibly incredibly uh competitive. There is very few things that we do that is not live, meaning you know score uh playing full you know guy guy versus guy uh You know where where there's a winner and a loser. There's a score being kept. So I think to some degree, you know, in some ways we're gonna give up a little bit of execution because we're not stopping and doing a ton of drills as much as we're trying to incorporate the competitiveness in the drill. That's one. So I think our kids are really competitive. So I think that has a lot to do with. Why we're good defensively, okay? Two, it is on un- because we watch film every day before practice. Your defensive lapses are going to get called out in front of your teammates significantly more than you know a turnover or what somebody may consider a questionable shot. You know, some coaches are really good at coaching shot selection through. Film and through what they uh what they require of their players, I'm not quite there on that side of it, but your effort defensively if if you don't contest a shot or if you don't close out and your hands are down, you know for whatever reason um if you let a guy go on a straight line drive we we do chart those we call them blow In practice, like every day when you walk into practice the day before, you're going to have how many shot contests you you had, what percentage of the shots you contested. You're going to have what your record, your individual record in practice was the day before for anything that we do live, Um, anytime you've gotten blown by, boom, and then your offense and defensive percentages, offensive uh, rebound percentage, percentage of time that you're supposed to go that you went. And if you're not a guy who's supposed to go, it's your get back percentage, your percentage of the time. And then defensively, uh, your percentage of blockouts, uh, uh, available blockouts, because not everyone, not every time is there a blockout available. So there is some subjectivity to that. But those things are in our locker room. So you're seeing that every day. Those are things that I'm coaching with with film via film. So I'm pretty consistent in those aspects. So you're a defensive oriented team, right? It's because of that. We do one thing that I think is unique because we don't gamble a ton for steals, but we get a lot of steals in that any time an offensive player spins, every time, time an offensive player spins from the weak side, you're you're in full attack on that spin so if an offensive player drives it i'm just going to say he's on the right wing and he drives it baseline baseline, to the to the right baseline and your job is to cut him off and on that cut off the next closest guy is in full rotation head head on the ball hands on the ball two hands and your head on the ball so we're attacking spin dribbles in the half court and it's something that we we have a couple of drills for. And it's something that, again, we're, we're really, really emphasizing that. And we get a lot of turnovers on spin dribbles. So um, you have to be comfortable teaching it. And it's got to be something that you believe is to your advantage. But it's something that, that we really,
0: really emphasize and work on a great deal. I love that. And uh, that's one of the reasons I want to ban the spin dribble at youth levels. Because I'm just saying it's a bad dribble to learn because at the right. highest levels, people like you are exploiting it. But uh, yeah, um, so in terms of that, are they running and jumping? Are they leaving or are they staying in terms of the trap? Right, so it
1: is, it's not a trap. It's an what we would call it an attack of the ball. So again, you're the closest, you're guarding the closest guy and now we'll get into rotations if needed. So if the ball is spun, your head on the ball, two hands trying to take it, and then everybody's in rotation out of that. Now we're not going to stay with a trap on that, um, but we're going to try to attack the basketball and create a turnover out of it. And if in gambling that might be considered gambling, I don't think it is. But if in gambling to attack the ball, you don't get it, your teammate has your closest teammate has to cover and you're going to rotate to the weak side. So, you know, for us I I think it's consistent again, you hope it's consistent. We do the same thing if you trap the post on the bounce. If we trap the post, whoever traps rotates to the to the weak side after the trap. And again, our traps in the post we're trying to our our goal is not, you know, hands up, chest on chest. Our goal is Eyes, forehead, and hands on the ball to attack the basketball. This is why I like doing this with you. Just so you know, is because it makes me in the middle of May when I'm trying not to think too much about this stuff. It makes me not only think about it, but in also have to justify why we do what we do. And I I appreciate it a lot because it makes me think: Are there any things? Because sometimes there's things that aren't consistent. We're always trying to be consistent in our teaching. So that as a player, when you come in, it's not we do some things this way and then some things we do it this way. So we try to be as consistent as we can. And some of these things have developed over time. The, the attacking of the spin dribble has happened more for us in the last three years than my previous nine years. And, and the reason for it, quite honestly, is because we had a great player at doing that instinctively and you know i i guess what i think i you know you try to be as a coach like oh, okay this is pretty good he's really good at doing this well let's make sure we teach how we want this done so that one other guys can get good at it and two we now have you know some rules to follow as we're as we're working on this
0: or as one guy's working on it so that it's putting us all in a good position. I love that. I mean, it just speaks to how much we learn from our players if we watch. And, uh, you know, our initial reaction might be, no, no, don't do that. And then you start to think about it right. and go, actually, that's smart, Right. <laughs> we should be doing it. The other thing that yeah. stands out from what you just said is about, uh, you know, you talk about being consistent, which is obviously important, but I imagine your players are very adaptable with their decision-making, and, and you mentioned already, covering for each other. And in watching your team play, I do think that your rotations, and your scramble recoveries are just outstanding and that's really stood out for me watching you guys defensive yeah i appreciate that and again that's a, that's another that's part of
1: when it's part of what we do if that makes sense it's part of like when i say okay do what we do we're going to attack the ball and in doing that to be to be good at it you also have to be able to rotate and cover for each other and you know you have to have multiple efforts you have to be trying to dictate like because if, if you just are sprinting and running at guys randomly and they can choose either which way to go in a rotation, it's putting your defense at a at a disadvantage. So we're trying as best we can to dictate where the dribble goes on that rotation so that you can cover better. Um, and we're working on all of those things, you know, throughout our our four v four, uh, our three v three, our five v five, like all of the things that we're doing, it, it does all try to align as best we can. And um, you know, teams that that play against us, they know like we're gonna on ball screens, you know, we 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 really have, I, I don't want to say it's only one coverage because that's not true, but we have what we want to do on ball screens. And we're going to really, really hard hedge these ball screens as much as we can. Well, if I know we're consistent on that, well, then I know what you're going to try to do against the hard hedge of the ball screen. So we can then coach the back line to to be where they can be to, to best cover up for that. If one time I'm hard hedging, or we call it a plug, but if I'm hard plugging one time and I'm, um, you know, drop coverage the next time and I'm gray coverage the next time and then I'm switching the next time, it's a little bit harder for the other three guys on the court or four guys because the guy defending the, the the guy coming off the screen to really be as confident in what they need to be doing. So again, it's not to say we don't adapt or adjust or teach more than one way of doing it. But, you know, our mantra is do what we do. That would been, that's another, like, that's one of the things that we do. And, you know, I do understand, because I watch the NBA a ton. I understand the NBA doesn't do it that way, but their rules are completely different than college basketball rules. I happen to be a, I love the differences. And I know a lot of people want our game, college game, To mimic the NBA more, uh, whether it's via shot clock or or advance the ball or this that all these different things, which are all great, but our game is really different because the the defensive three seconds is it's a game changer on 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 how you can defend in the NBA versus how you can defend in college, and um, you know because of that know, we, we defend a lot differently than what I see teams in the NBA do. I, I think they're really, really scared to hard hedge ball screens for a variety of reasons that, that I, I don't think that way for college. I just think it's different.
0: It's definitely different. I, I just want to highlight something. I think it was brilliant that you said the idea of doing one thing, like say plugging the ball screens, as you say, the value of that is that you and your players learn all the solutions to that problem. So whatever the offense is going to do, you're more adept at the solution. I think that's just brilliant. The other thing I want to highlight and talk about a little bit more is this concept and I know we align on this. I'm playing offense versus defense more in practice. And I just say it to coaches, there's nothing else you talk about your team being competitive. There's no other way to develop a competitive mindset than to compete. And you can't do it in on air drills or drills where there's no defense or no offense or something like that as well as you can do it and build that mindset. And that mindset training is obviously very important in your program, isn't it? Yep, it's it that 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 you you
1: said it a lot better than I say it because I really I, again I I love listening to the way you I I just do what we do <laughs> and how we do it and I believe in what we do, but I don't have quite the uh the ability to to break it down intellectually the way that that you do. And um yeah, to if you're going to be a competitive team, you got to compete, right? Doesn't that make sense? It's hard to do everything in drill form or in blow it dead form or in dummy form and then expect when there's other players out there that that are competing for you to just be able to flip a switch and turn it on. Now there's a balance to that too and and you know during our season You know, once we had one of our starters broke his hand, um, I did adapt from moving forward in that year, this past year. And I've done it in different years to where, you know, we haven't done quite as much live contact stuff from that point forward. Because we couldn't afford at that point for anybody else to miss significant time due to injury. and. We're already in January and to some degree, you know, the mindset and the team, we, we were sort of where we, we were what we were. And now we just need to make sure, hey, we got to be in a mentally sharp s- spot. We got to be physically capable and, you know, we need to get up and down a little bit, but we don't need to go a hundred miles an hour on everything we do, you know. I, I use an example, and, and and it did hurt us in the NCAA tournament when we played Indiana. Our shoot-arounds are always, you know, day-of-game shoot-arounds. They are always live until I blow a whistle, blow it dead, always. And that's every game. And the day of the game, our best player, you know, bang knees with somebody else and he was not at a hundred percent sincere carry he was not uh during the game and it sucked and that was one that i was you know i was beating myself up over uh for, for a while because how could your best player get need in the thigh during your shoot around prior to your biggest game um but at the same time, I'd say that's the same way that we did shoot around for you know I don't know how many games I've coached if it's three hundred it's three hundred that's the first time that's happened. you know, do I need to change maybe the next time I'm in that situation i'll I'll be smarter um but I can't regret having done what i've done what what we did because that's what we do and you know i'll I'll be interested as we're talking here because I know uh The coach of the Celtics got a lot of heat for not calling the timeouts, whether it was the end of regulation or in overtime, and they got great shots, and one of them was after the buzzer by one-tenth of a second, and the other one, guy just missed a pretty good look. You know, coaches get criticized when it doesn't go well, and that's part of it. And maybe you do adjust. I'll be really interested to watch if he feels very strongly that, you know, this was the right decision. Or if you say, hey, I I I I think it's really the right decision, but I learned that it didn't work. So you know what? This time I'm gonna do something different to see if if that works. Cause I'm sure there'll be another one possession game in the last 15 seconds over the course of the playoffs. And I'll just be interested to see how how you know he handles that because I don't think there's a right or wrong. I think it's just how, how do you make, you know, adjustments that you need to make. So, you know, a knock on wood, we go to the NCAA tournament again. I'm not sure what we'll do on that one, but I have a feeling that I'll blow the whistle a little bit sooner moving forward just for that, for that purpose.
0: Hey, Coach. A brief timeout from the podcast to bring you the Analytics Minute, sponsored by Hoopsalytics. How do you decide who your biggest impact players are? Traditional stats don't tell the whole story, which is why high-level pro and college teams rely on analytic systems like Hoopsalytics to make data-driven lineup decisions. Examining team stats when a player is on the floor tells a more compelling story. For example, you can use net points per possession to determine your best two-way players, as well as your offensive and defensive stars. Or use the team rebounding percentage for each player to see who has the biggest impact on rebounding. The results may surprise you. Hoopsalytics brings the most powerful analytics to teams of all levels. It's easy to use and affordable. It's like AI for basketball coaches. Discover how Hoopsalytics can help you make better data-driven coaching decisions. Visit Hoopsalytics.com/ball. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com slash ball today to learn more and start analyzing your games for free that's such a great example those two examples back and forth about you know some of the things we decide as coaches and you like again you've been around coaching so long you know people have got injured in shoot arounds on air with no defense yeah i mean it just happens sometimes in it random right. moments and i don't think the necessarily again cause of effect and i went live in shoot arounds all the time too and uh, the mindset of that is just again it's You know, drop the volume, increase the intensity, and be able to get your players physically ready to play, and especially with the defensive mindset that you're trying to do. Yeah, coach. Everywhere, every assistant in your league, I talked to to get ready for the podcast, just to get a feel for style play, different things like that. The word that came up always was physical, and and I love that, and you can see that clearly. So, talk to us a little bit about balancing physical with the potential of fouling and uh, that balance there, because obviously you don't want to foul, but you want to play physical. Yep, and you know what? And that's that's
1: a uh, you know there's some give and take to everything that you do, right? So um, we we do we want to defend hard without fouling, um, and we want to be physical without putting a team to the free throw line all the time. So um, there are times that we foul too much, and there are times that maybe we get away with fouling when. We, we you know, we, we get away with it because of how we play all the time. I'm will, I guess, generally speaking, we, I don't want to say I, because it's not me, but we as a program, I guess, are willing to live with the other team may go to the free throw line a little bit more because of fouling. But we're going to go to the free throw line because we're going to be all over the offensive glass and we're going to be physical on the offensive end of the floor too and we're going to drive the ball and play off 2 feet and be strong and we're going to post the ball which you know again to me it's another difference to me in college and and the pros you know having a post up player in college whether it's a big guy or a guard or a wing or whatever it may be i think it's invaluable in the college game um which, again, may not be in the pro game as I watch it. It doesn't seem as valuable in the pro game as it does in the college game. But we're going to be physical on that end, too. So while we may foul too much, and it's sometimes you know not easy to, to – we, we tell our guys, <laughs> play hard without fouling. I mean, that's easy to say, but it's not as easy to do. Play hard without fouling. And sometimes a lot of your fouls come from not being in position where you're supposed to be. So you're late on a closeout or a rotation or a blockout. So a lot of your fouls come that way. But being physical is what we do. And it's who we are. And if that means that the other team is going to shoot some free throws because of it, there's certainly going to be games that we lose because the other team went to the foul line a couple more times than we did and made a couple more free throws. I'd like to hope that the the benefits of us being physical over time have have given us more reward as a program than it took away uh, in the negative of, you know, you fouled too much in a game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example of the balance and, uh, you know, making the decisions in the best interest of your program. the The other thing that stands out a little bit, I mean, you've had all defensive players, you've had defensive players of the year. Is there any insight in terms of identifying potential players in terms of their ability to play defense? That's a good one too because
1: I worry about that all the time. I do think length and athleticism. I mean, you know that that's some of it is a mindset, and and some of it is developing a mindset. And it's funny because uh, my, my associate head coach uh, Julian Sullinger, so his nephew plays here, Jalen, and Jalen was always a really talented player always and his freshman year he was really up and down with me because he he didn't guard and i'd yank him out and he seemed indifferent to playing defense right and again some of that you know when he was in high school he's such a good player he's so gifted he needed to be on the court he was such a he's still an elite elite scorer that you know, a lot of his mindset coming to Kent was i'm I'm gonna score. I, outs- I that's how I play. well, that's that's how he didn't get on the court. And then I, I I think between this freshman and sophomore year, again, you're in the the program for a year. you see what's being valued. You see how I, I'm rewarding guys who do defend with more playing time and more ability to to score his mindset changed over that year and he there's still some things that he's not great at okay because um you know sometimes his his ball pressure he gets a little too close to guys and fouls sometimes and you know some of the his ability to create those turnovers isn't quite at the level of of sin or malik but through experience after the season and talking to him he said next year You know, he wants to guard the other team's best player the way Sin did or Malik did. And if you were to have asked him what he thought about defense coming into college, he wouldn't have cared one bit about trying to defend. So seeing that growth, just using him as an example, it's awesome to see. So I think you can develop that in time. Um, And there's some, you know, Being tough and being physical and and uh, not minding getting hit or or being the aggressor and and creating contact, all of those things I think can be taught, Um, but you can't teach somebody, you know, to to be able to touch the top of the the square. You can't teach that. So, the athleticism piece and the length, those are things that that give you an advantage on that end. But the instincts, the desire, the competitive stuff are all things that we try to build with with our daily habits and and our practice habits and and again, I think our cultural habits as a program that's that's the 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 example with with Jalen. I think the cultural habits as as a program is what i'm most impressed with for him in in that example because Now that's really of value to him, and that's great for our team because when you're best players, that's a value to them. It feeds into everybody
0: on your roster. Absolutely. That's great stuff. And uh, the other thing I mentioned was that uh, you held opponents uh, 31% on three-point shooting, which is 38th in the country. So talk to us a little bit about the philosophy of shot contestants, particularly defending the three-point line. Well, the one one thing that we we do strong side corner threes are a
1: no no. Okay, so we we all of our help on on penetration, and it sort of again, it it comes with that the the concept of trying to create a spin. Right, that's your job is to try try to create a spin because all of your help is coming from the weak side, whether it's weak side at the rim to try to contest at the rim. Whether it's weak side on a spin, if you're able to create a spin, that's where your help's coming. The strong side, there is no, I don't want to say no, virtually no help. There's some players that if they're standing in the strong side corner, we will help off of that guy. That's a personnel scout stuff. But rule wise, teaching wise, how we can, you know, conceptually don't allow strong side corner threes. That's, that's one thing. And a strong side corner three is not just strong side, meaning, I'm sorry, not just corner. If I drive it from the corner to the middle, that next pass would be considered a strong side three. So we we try to eliminate as much of those as possible. So those shots should be when shot. They should be really, really highly contested shots. Or they shouldn't be able to get off so so that's that's why I think the percentage is low or or has a lot to do with it and then the other thing is we chart close like the closeout percentages that's that's really that that's charted it's charted in a on an individual basis it's charted on a team basis um and it's something that again is emphasized and and then you know we don't always have great length and size on the perimeter, but we we when you add size and length on the perimeter to that equation, now you're you're even tougher to to shoot threes against. So my my concern for next year is is that that Giovanni Santiago and Jalen Sullinger, who are two of our returning guards and are both really good players they don't have tremendous size they're small so we're going to have to be even better in those areas you know and the other thing we don't play much zone and i think when you play zone you're living with allowing obviously you want the threes to be contested but you're 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 generally living with allowing teams to get threes up against you and we don't play much so You're playing against half-court man-to-man most of the time. We don't press a ton either. You're playing against half-court man-to-man most of the time. Philosophically, we're not giving up the next pass threes, strong side threes. And we have length. So that's going to make it
0: tough to shoot threes against. Yeah, it speaks to the value of helping from the weak side instead of off the ball side, and uh, I, I certainly love that philosophy. The, the other thing that uh, you mentioned there, I'm just curious: what are some of the things you chart in terms of the individual closeout or evaluating the individual shot contest? What are some things we should be looking for as coaches?
1: Well, you know, we 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 are always wanting two hands on the closeout. That's that's what we're that's what we're drilling. All right, a two hand closeout. The way we drill our defense is no straight line drives that's first and foremost and then no baseline drives we don't want you driving baseline but more importantly we don't want you driving in a straight line okay so we're charting those things um the r- way we rotate it's hard to really describe o- over voice but the way we rotate is to to take away the the box on our on a rotation we're gonna meet you outside the lane line. We're gonna sink inside and then scramble out. And we we often, often are in what we would call X out situations where in a scramble, we're not necessarily closing out to to our guy, right? We're closing out to the next guy is taking this guy and then I may be taking that guy. So you may be in an X. We have our drills to drill that. Right. So our our warm up drills for practice, you know, our first 15 minutes usually of practice are a variety of these. We have night we call 90 second drills. So we do a lot of 90 second reminders of how we're defending things, whether it's digging the ball out of the post, creating spins, long closeouts, uh, X outs skip to closeouts so all these different things that we're doing we're reminding our players that's a all-year-long thing i mean that's that's from practice one to practice 99 you know the first 15 minutes are a lot of these reminders some of them game specific hey we know this team is really good at this this is what we need to really work on We do a sink and fill and rotate inside the big. We do all these different reminder drills defensively that uh, emphasize, you know, close out. And then, like I said, we chart that in practice. We chart that during a game. Our goal, a a goal for us is an 80% contest rate. So, you know, are there going to be shots that teams get because they move the ball? that aren't contested yeah are some of your contests not going to impact the the offensive player yes but we never want to see a guy tee up a shot and not have somebody flying out to him even if potentially it's not going to have a huge impact on them making or missing it's just the way that we are with what we're doing so i have an assistant who he is in charge of the defensive stats and the defensive uh, breakdown and the defensive, uh, we, we assign points during a game and during a practice who was responsible for this point. It's not, it's very rarely just one guy. Usually it's two or more guys that's responsible for a basket. And we chart all of those things. And those are the things that, again, I think the most important thing from the coaching standpoint it's not what you chart or what you know what you do but it's it's all got to be consistent. That to me I think is the most important thing. If you're going to chart who's responsible for the points and that's you're spending a lot of time doing that. My staff is doing that. And then I don't talk about it with the players or call guys out for hey you get you you were responsible for 24 of the 70 points you only played 25 minutes how can you give up this many points like if you're not going to do that then the messages get crossed and then it's hard to hold your players to a level of accountability because they don't know what you value as the coach so i've always felt it's much less important what you believe in than because there's a thousand different ways to do it and you've seen it but how consistent are you and how strongly do you believe in what you what you're coaching because that's where the test comes is you have to stay consistent with with what is of value to
0: you because that's what becomes a value to your players such great insights already about you know coaching and the coaching process and i'm just grateful for that I, I do want to challenge coaches who hopefully they listen the whole time here because I want to come back to the spin concept yeah we're only trapping spin we're not trapping counters between the legs or behind the back or is there some freedom to do that as well no well behind the back to
1: me is like a spin
0: okay but, that's okay. i just wanted to clarify the, for yeah. coaches because the reason you'd
1: go behind your back is because you got cut off as an offensive player right exactly. if if you're going behind your back dribbling just up top of top of the key or you're you know, dribbling between your legs at the top of the key. We're not just running at a ball. No, it's on a counter dribble. Yeah, yeah. it's on a, it's, it's the, the attack of the spin is strictly based on me cutting off the offensive player and dictating, because we use that term a lot, dictate. Okay, we use that on ball screens. You know, I'm guarding the ball, the ball handler on a ball screen. My job is to dictate where he goes, right? So again, defensively, if I've cut you off, I'm dictating that you counter by going behind the back or counter by spinning. And that's when the attack is coming in. And, and the attack isn't like coming just on the spin. it's, well, he's driving right. Well, I should be flowing to the basketball anyway, yeah. right? because that's the way he's going. So I should be flowing to the ball everyone should be flowing to the ball and now defensively i've done such a good job that i make him spin well i should be there or or be in a position to be there so it's really an out of control dribbler that we're attacking we're not attacking
0: a ball handler that's under control and and now knowing this detail i'm imagining this is one of the reasons your players are very good at driving kick and that seems to stand out as well is that your players are able to play in straighter lines, possibly on drives, because they play against this type of threat defensively? Yeah, all the time? That, that, that's it's not something I've ever thought about,
1: but yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm not sure I'm right. It just seems yeah. like a
0: theory. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, it, it makes sense again because they're playing against that every day. That they know, you know what I what I think that we're good at. Quite honestly, it's more the the pass that that we're giving up is the. It's, you know, the drive right, skip it, two passes over left. It's really, to me, it helps put you, you know, the easy play that's easy for everybody to see is the drive and strong corner kick. It's the drive and drop-off pass. I hope that we've defensively covered those things up, that the pass that's available is the drive and sort of like throwback pass. and then that's where the closeouts come.
0: And, and similarly, goes hand in hand with what you're saying in terms of you want to force turnovers defensively, but you don't want to turn it over on offense. So you're yeah. working on both those at the same time. Yep, yep, yep. And and again, I think
1: for not turning it over on offense, um, multiple ball handlers mm. ha- has been the biggest key for why we don't turn the ball over on offense. Because again, you're not going to. We're we're not. Uh, there's teams in our league that are more efficient than us offensively, um, but again, I, I I believe this is from working from for Coach Sampson too, who's an elite offensive rebounding coach. Like, if we get a shot up, we have a four out of ten chance to get it back. <laughs> That's how I look at it. Three and a half or four at first, you got a chance to make it, then you have a chance to get it back. And and those are the ones we like the most. And then you have a chance to kick out threes, which are, you know, the the hardest shots to defend, or you have a chance to get to the free throw line because teams are in rotation. So we go offensive rebound with four players. So though, and and to me, I would say a bad shot is better than a turnover most of the time, right? Like not most, all the time. But sometimes bad shots lead to transition on the other end. But just as a general statement, I, 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 I want to make sure we get at least one shot per possession. So again, my coaching, our coaching, some of the shot selection is not going to be, I, I can't emphasize everything, right? I can't, I can't dog cuss you out because you're not guarding anybody. And then I'm cussing you out. And and I don't mean cussing, but and I'm cussing you out because hard every yeah. hard coaching, every shot you take, saying, gosh, that wasn't the best shot. Like at some point, I got to give some freedom to the players to make decisions and play. And I'm much more comfortable being demanding on the defensive end than I am on the offensive end. And we try to put our guys in positions offensively to make simple plays. It's always simple plays, singles, not home runs, singles, simple plays, more than one shot per possession. That means limit turnovers. And, and, you know, we do try to coach, you know, hockey assists and inside out basketball, but I'm, I'm much more demanding about a closeout than I am a, a a shot, um, and I really feel like, for the most part, the good players they know what a good shot for them is and what isn't a good shot for them and 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 I think if if you care about winning as a player, you try to get the best shots for your team, right? Like that's what you try to do. So I try to coach caring about winning because if you care about winning you know, then you're not going to try to just jack shots up because that's not about winning. That's about you. And um, that's that to me is how we've tried to do it here.
0: I I don't know that it's the best way, but it's the best way for us. Uh, it's been a great way for you. And uh, I love that that just that example of Hard coaching is really what I refer to as holding them accountable, which you've talked yep. about throughout, and you can't hold them accountable to everything. So I love that example, coach. Thanks for sharing that. The other thing I want to go a little deeper with is just some of the rebounding philosophy because, uh, you know, you already referenced this early in the podcast about personnel based a little bit, whether you're a get back or you're going to the boards type player. Yep. Is that is that how you organize your offensive rebounding system? Yep. Yep. So that is
1: that it's personnel based. But our rule is four guys go to the offensive glass, so the the fourth guy, okay, the fourth guy, three guys go, they got to go, three, four, and five. Let's just use that. They got to go, no matter what. The fourth guy has to go or can go, and we'd like them to go, but we want them going to the middle, okay? We don't want them going to the baseline because if they go to the baseline and they don't get the rebound they're out of the play defensively. We want them going to the middle, and, and more times than not, I want them all going to the middle because even the wings, if they go baseline, they're putting themselves out of the play if, if they don't get it, putting themselves out of the play in transition if they don't get it. But the, that, that's, not, that, that's a little more detail than, than how we generally do it, but the detail of your other guard going to the middle, I, I, I think that's an important part of it. Who that guard is for us, again, is personnel-based. So sometimes it's our point guard is our fourth offensive rebounder. Sometimes our, uh, our, our point guard is our get-back guy. So that is dependent. Sometimes uh, a point guard shoots it, it drives it, and point guard drives it. Well, you can't ask him to be the get back guy if he's also the drive it. If he also drove it into the paint, so then a two guard has to be the get back guy. So some of that again is is through practice and repetition. This is you know you got to figure some of those things out. This isn't always. It's not a math equation. So some of it you have to figure out on the fly. But philosophy wise, we want four guys going to the glass, and and. Again, there's things you're going to give up, just like I said with fouling. Are you going to give up some teams that are great defensive rebounding teams? Are they going to have a little bit of an advantage in transition offense against you? Yeah, they probably are. But if you can save a couple basketballs and get a couple more offensive rebounds each game and get to the free throw line a couple more times each game, or the threat of you going to the glass, has everybody so concerned with defensive rebounding that they're they're not as quick to outlet the ball, it's it's worth it to me what you get as opposed to what you give. Now, the person that goes to the middle, again, this is also part of personnel and playing with two point guards often. That guy's going to stop the ball. That's who stops the ball. So if that guy for you, isn't capable of being a guy who defends and stops the ball, well, then maybe you got to send two people back and you can't do what what we do. But we want to send four guys to the glass. There are times that, you know, I use Gio and Jalen as as an example of this year's roster. Those two guys were always get back guys. So if they were both on the court together, they're not going to change what they do just because they were on the court together. So now maybe during that segment of play, we may only be going with three guys to the glass because you're, as I can't, some guys have the ability, as you're in the program longer, you have the ability to do more than one. I can be a get back guy sometimes, I could be a offensive rebounder sometimes, but there's too much information overload to have everybody doing everything. So those two guys would generally get back when they were playing on the court together um but
0: the rest of the guys would be going to offensive rebound so so i think that's just so important what you said about being personnel based and you know traditionally 20 years ago whatever it was the point guard's got to be the get back or anything like that and you and i we've all coached great point guards that are great rebounders right it just doesn't make sense and adapting the personnel is so important so such a powerful point point Rob, I want to ask. Uh, you mentioned this to me just before uh, the uh, the podcast. Uh, one of the philosophies of limiting turnovers is to use sets designed for players to make the most of the play. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yep.
1: Okay. So i I, I feel as if you know for for there, there's a lot of different ways to do things and 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 be successful at it. But you have to, I've, I've said it in a number of different ways, you got to be comfortable with, with what you're doing. So, um, and you have to be comfortable coaching what you're doing. So we do in the half court, we run a lot of set plays. And within those set plays, there's specific guys that are supposed to be handling the ball for the majority of these actions. Um, and in doing that, if you can control that your best ball handlers have the ball, best decision makers have the ball the vast majority of the time, you should be able to have less turnovers doing that. and i I, I use as an example because I know now a lot of people uh, run and we run it in our offense, like uh, I call it flow, but where you have one big high and one big low and it's continuity handoff ball screen. Sort of like a ball screen continuity is what it's like, right? Teams used to run flex. Now they run this that ball, ball screen, screen motion, European ball, ball screen, screen motion, Lithuanian ball right. screen flow. Right. And those are great things to run. And they, I think they're great offenses for when you need to make sure everybody is getting a touch because not everybody's gotten a touch. and Or you're taking too many quick shots and you want to run the clock for a little bit. I think those are great things to have in your arsenal. But if you consistently run offense like that, you're going to consistently have guys who maybe aren't your best decision makers with the ball. Sometimes it may be in places that they're not comfortable with the basketball because a lot of times bigs are up high with the ball. So when you do that, there's some... You know, you you gotta have a lot, you have to work on that a ton because to have proper decision making with all the five guys handling the ball at very different times on the uh, on the floor, they all have to get comfortable making decisions. Otherwise, you're gonna have too many turnovers. We we will run some of that ball screen movement, but that's not the core of what we do. And the reason for that is the core of what we do. We want specific guys to have the ball, making the plays for other guys, and that doesn't mean that that guy's supposed to shoot every time, or that if a play is run for him. A lot of times, when the play is run for you, it's to make a, a read of one or two. Oh, they're gonna come. Do you drop it? Do you throw it back? Do you skip it? But the 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 ball handling, the decision making, is made by fewer guys. Therefore, if those guys are good, you you think you have f- fewer turnovers. And we've been pretty good with
0: that. I love that. And I've had that conversation with a few coaching clients at the college level, and they asked me ways to reduce turnovers. And it's just literally that get more direct with your best players into the action you want. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's nice to have everyone touch the ball, etc. As you said, sometimes, but mostly, we want to get our best players the advantage to be able to score or create a help situation where yep. then they can create for others. You got it. And I
1: think again, depending upon what level of basketball you're you're listening to this, like youth coaches, those are great offenses because everybody does need to learn how to play and and if if your bigs only post, they don't ever learn how to handle the ball, and they may not always be your bigs. And if your guards never post, same thing, like having guards that can post, I I don't want to go on tangents, but having guards that can post is such an unbelievable offensive weapon because you have your best ball, your best decision makers, your best ball handlers. And if they're capable of creating a double team or getting fouled going to the rim, what a great advantage it is for your offense. But Again, being able to teach that at the youngest levels, I think, is really important. And, you know, if I was not getting judged on wins and losses, I'd probably think that's a great way to to teach the game. But when we're trying to win, we want to put, as you said, we want to put our best players in position to make the most plays.
0: I think you're ready to take over this podcast, Rob, making that (laughs) point. Because, yeah, connecting it back to youth, it's a different philosophy. And I'm so glad you said that. That's excellent. The other thing I want to ask you about is it really seems to stand out. I mean, you've been in the game a long time, so obviously you have a coaching tree, but uh, there seems to be a conscious effort on your part to get your former players onto your staff and to have young people on your staff that you can develop and uh, obviously are aligned with your system. But a lot of them have gone on to great success. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's probably the coolest thing of
1: having been at Kent for as long as I've been here. Um. And having the the number of players that played here, whether it was uh, for me as an assistant coach or for me as a head coach that have gone on to coach uh, and and many of them in college, not all of them in college, but many of them in college, being able to give them an opportunity here and, and to piggyback on what you said, my current staff, all three assistants played at Kent. Uh, my director of basketball operations, he's a graduate assistant. He actually just got a job. He just graduated, got his master's degree, and he just got a job for another former player of mine who's now the head coach at Jacksonville, uh, Jordan Mincy. So uh, my three assistant coaches, my graduate assistant played at Kent. His name's Kevin Zabo. He just got a job with another former player. So that's really cool. Um, it certainly helps with my team. It helps with my players because they've all been through what we've done. And it's good to have outside ideas, too. And I love going to clinics, and I encourage them to go to clinics uh, and to listen to podcasts and to be part of, you know, learning from a different way because we we do adjust from what we see and how, you know, whether it's plays or, different things that we we watch that we want to incorporate in what we do. But it brings me tremendous uh, satisfaction and and enjoyment being able to help guys if they want to get into coaching, putting, putting them on staffs or giving them opportunities on staffs. And now to see, you know, we have former assistant coaches who are now head coach at Jacksonville, assistant coach at Marquette, assistant coach at Northern Kentucky assistant coach at Oklahoma, on and on and on. We have a, a former player that's an assistant coach in the NBA with the Cavs. So it it really, it, it's a cool thing to see. And uh, whether, you know, it's it's moving on to high school, because we have a couple guys that are coaching in high school or or in college. Uh, it's great to be a part of that development of, of our
0: guys. It's absolutely a great part of what you've done and, uh, you know, the different things that uh, you've achieved at Kent. And uh... Coach, I can't thank you enough. I mean, just so many incredible insights here at the podcast. And uh, thank you for sharing the game with us. Yeah, well, I, I enjoy being on. I
1: appreciate you, you having me. And um, it's a lot of fun to be able to talk about basketball. I I, I really enjoy it. It's one of my favorite things to do. And listening to you talk to other uh, coaches is, is one of the things that I find really fun, too.
0: So thank you. Well, thank you, Coach. Are you ready to take your coaching to the next level? Thousands and thousands of coaches have already benefited from Basketball Immersion's membership community, and you can be next. Join us as an individual coach or take advantage of our exclusive pricing for staff or club members and unlock valuable learning resources with access to cutting-edge basketball and coaching concepts that will save you time and improve your coaching and your players' enjoyment of practices and games. Take advantage of this opportunity today. Go to www.basketballimmersion.com.